gender and primitivism, I'm afraid. However, does anyone here remember the uh, 1969 Ken Russell film of Women in Love? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm showing my age. Well, we'll remember the uh, scene of Hermione's dinner party, where the idea was to make a little ballet in the style of the Russian ballet of Pavlova and Nijinsky. In this 1920 novel, Lawrence was, of course, looking back to the early days of the Ballet Russe, whose popularity with the British avant-garde was renewed in London after the First World War. At the 1919 London seasons, even Ezra Pound was captivated by the primitivism of Prince Igor, and all of Bloomsbury was in love with Massine, of course. However, Elsewhere, Lawrence's sympathies lay not with ballet, but more explicitly with the free dance styles of Louis Fuller, Isadora Duncan, and the Greek dance. And in the same novel, in Women and Love, Gudrun, remember, um, Gudrun st stems the advance of a raging bull with a dance explicitly executed in the style of Jacques Dalcroze's Eurythmics. And I think it was Glenda Jackson who took that, that role so magnificently in that film. In an earlier novel, The Rainbow in 1915, Anna Brangman reflects the expressionist movement of German Nachtkultur, dancing pregnant and naked in front of the mirror. However, I'm going to look at a different side of Lawrence's attention to dance and his appropriation of dance in his fiction. And largely as a result of his travels in Mexico and New Mexico in 1924 and 1925, Lawrence began to explore dance not as the individual interpretation of the self, but rather as an expression of communal identity through primitive ritual. While staying in Santa Fe and Taos in New Mexico, his observation of Pueblo Indian dances resulted in a number of quasi-ethnographic writings in this period. And in one short story of 1925, The Woman Who Rode Away, which was actually set in Mexico, although the landscapes were in fact derived from New Mexico, from Taos. Um, Lawrence, to some extent, borrows here from his anthropological observation to lend a kind of, and I'm doing the quotation marks, authenticity to his fictional evocation of modernist primitivism. Yet I shall argue that in an unacknowledged gesture to Diaghilev, and in spite of the very different settings of the two works, he nevertheless exploits in this story a number of performative strategies borrowed almost directly from the Rite of Spring. Now, this is highly speculative, so we have no hard evidence that Lawrence ever saw the rite, either in its original production in 1913 or in the revivals of 1920 and 21 with choreography by Niacine. 
However, he was in London in 1913, um, and he would have been talking to John Middleton Murray and Catherine Mansfield, who established Rhythm, the, the magazine Rhythm then, and were writing about, um, and it was all the rage, of course. But anyway, the, the woman who wrote away, uh, which was first published in the Dial and in the Criterion in 1925 at separate times, followed an essay uh, that he wrote on the Hopi snake dance for Theatre Arts Monthly in 1924. And this is, of course, the period during which Massine's right was being reviewed in that journal. In Lawrence's The Hopi Snake Dance, he described his visit to the Hopi Indian country in Arizona, uh, where he watched the annual ritual when members of the community dance with rattlesnakes in their mouths to encourage the renewal of their spiritual association with nature. And in this essay, Lawrence makes a really interesting point, identifying an important distinction between performance dance and ritual uh, dance of the Native American peoples. He says, one may look on from the angle of culture as one looks on while Anna Pavlova dances with the Russian ballet, or there is still another point of view, the religious. Therefore, please, no clapping or cheering or applause, but remember you are, as it were, in church. Here Lawrence recognises a distinction between dance as spectacle, dance as religious ritual, and, and sees it in this latter form as an internalised expression of communal energy and identity, a kind of Dionysian, but a turned Dionysian energy turned inwards to the community, a theme he would use for his short story, The Woman Who Rode Away. Interestingly, earlier that year, in the March issue of Theatre Arts Monthly, Florence Gilliam had written on the Russian ballet, as we heard this morning from Lynn, assessing Massine's choreography for Wright as more abstract than Nijinsky's. She also described the choreography for The Chosen Maiden, um, and she talks about it when danced in Paris at one performance by Nijinska, again, as we heard this morning, as an expression of spasmodic, hysterical terror in the face of an inevitable fate, while Lydia Sokolova gave the role the fanatic ecstasy of the dervish who dances until overtaken by unconsciousness or death. I'm going to argue that elements of Lawrence's 1925 story echo this idea of a woman's inevitable fate in which she finds herself overtaken by unconsciousness or death. And lying at the heart of The Woman Who Rode Away is the story of ritual female sacrifice that reminds us of modernism's complex relationship to primitivism and gender across a number of art forms. The Woman Who Wrote Away tells the story of a young white American woman bored with her marriage to the white owner of a Mexican silver mine who leaves home seeking adventure by riding out to explore an isolated village inhabited by a tribe of the indigenous peoples. She's abducted by the tribe and offered as a sacrifice to the sun to ensure the fertilization of the land when winter is over. We can already see the parallels, okay. The story broadly represents for Lawrence, Western civilizations need to pay for its corruption and greed. But in spite of his critique of Western society, he manages to punish the woman, as the character is called, and she's never identified by name, for her audacity in abandoning her um, domestic space. 
While the story is set in a different context and its protagonist is in fact an outsider to the tribe, unlike um, the writer of Spring's right, uh, Chosen Maiden, we shall see that paradoxically Lawrence's narrative of so-called anthropological themes echoes the performative quality of Wright's primitivism in quite surprising ways. So the setting and religious background of the story was the result of the Lawrences taking a trip on horseback to the ceremonial cave near the village of Arroyo Seco on their way to Taos, Taos in May 1924. The landscape is thus New Mexican, not Mexican. The narrative strategy, however, achieves two functions that bear reminders of the visual and dramatic structures of Wright. First, Lawrence experiments in this story with the technical disposition of narrative, represented here as a series of modernist landscapes. Rather than building the teleological thrust of the story through the conventional ordering of events, he creates narrative anticipation by presenting a successive um, number of blocks of text that each describe um, color, blocks of color, blocks of setting, mood, as if leading the reader through a series of staged scenes to um, convey aspects of the woman's physical and emotional journey towards death. He begins with the protagonist's view from her husband's ranch. She could stand outside in the vast open world and see great void tree-clad hills piling behind one another, from nowhere into nowhere. They were green in autumn time, for the rest pinkish, stark, dry and abstract behind those great blank hills. So um, there's another rhetoric. I think we can get the idea here. Somewhat suggestive of Rerich's primitivism in his broad descriptive brushstrokes for the right back cloth. And we must remember that Lawrence was a painter himself. And, uh, well, some people think he was quite a bad painter, but <laughs> he, did, he, he was also a primitivist in his use of colour and so on. Um, Lawrence also uses these blocks of colours and conjures a harsh, impenetrable countryside which is both abstract in design and opens onto a vacant centre. He echoes Rerich's depiction of a prehistoric Russia that directs the viewer to a spatial void at the centre of a configuration of bare rocky peaks, and in this case, the and, and he also mentions the the trees, the pine trees, at some uh, at some point, stretches of naked rock against the sky, rock slashed already and brindled with white stripes of snow. They're two-dimensional shapes, and we talked. To, uh, somebody was uh, was just talking about the two-dimensionality of Rurik's uh, designs, obliquely gestures to mimetic forms, and hint at a deeper perspective beyond that the blank hills, and it's the centre that's constituted by the nothing, a kind of representational symbol of the extinction of the woman in the story and the chosen one in the ballet. Lawrence's presentation of the female protagonist herself also illustrates a thematic similarity to the right narrative. His ideas about the body and movement, of course, reflect, in some ways like the right of spring, a Nietzschean perspective on the Dionysian, where the force of communal identity results in the loss of individual subjectivity. And in spite of the woman's outsider status in Lawrence's story, 
Lawrence suggests the same group indifference to the individual that we get in, in the Rite of Spring. In Lawrence's story, when the woman is taken by members of what Lawrence refers to as a, a, an entirely fictional Chilchui Indian tribe, the narrator states bleakly, but she had no will of her own, repro reproducing the sense of inevitability generated in right. Again, I'm going to point to Millicent Hodson's reconstruction, uh, speculative reconstruction of the right, because it's, very, it's quite convenient in this um, context to, to think about the way in which Nijinsky might himself have achieved this theme through his disposition of the figure of the chosen one in relation to the tribe. Um, initially, according to Hodson, marked at the moment when she trips in the circle dance, as we heard earlier, falling outside the design of the dance of her companions. In the story, the American woman is led on horseback into the village where she is prepared for the ritual sacrifice to the sun god. So there appears to be a much greater sense of passivity in there. I mean, the, the fact that the dance... The dancer, the chosen one, is dancing, gives her um, extreme agency, or not extreme agency, but an, an element of agency in, in the proceedings. But the woman's first conversation with an Indian who waylays her reminds us of the chosen one's loss of subjectivity. He looked at her with a black, bright, inhuman look and saw no woman at all in, in her as if she were some strange, unaccountable thing, incomprehensible to him, but inimical. We may be reminded here of Nijinsky's method, according to Hodson, in constructing puppet-like um, repetitive movements in the final dance, the woman commodified as instrument of the ritual by the will of the group. And as, as Adorno has observed, writing about the uh, primitive primitivist turn in Stravinsky's music. Subjectivity takes on the character of sacrifice, but uh, Adorno says, and in this he mocks the tradition of humanistic art, the music identifies not with the victim, but the annihilating authority. These remarks might be applied equally to Lawrence's literary strategies of female sacrifice. Other correspondences between the ballets and Lawrence's narrative occur in the presence and role of the elders of the tribe throughout the story who conduct the ritual. And in the description of the ritual itself in The Woman Who Rode Away, Lawrence refers to the circular and snake-like movements of tribesmen dressed in animal skins. Um, in the ballet, the woman dances to death, while in the story she's led towards the site of her sacrificial murder. Yet the narrative emphasis on her active desire to lose her identity. So there is a, a form of, of active desire there. Um, she wishes to lose her identity in the relentless rhythms of the communal dance. The presentation of the drugged semi-consciousness of this woman is an absolutely dreadful story. I don't recommend it entirely. <laughs> Um, of the woman suggests an element of almost willing participation in her journey, in her, in her own death, in her journey towards death. Um, and this, I think, is, is quite compelling, this um, passage in relation to the dance itself, in relation to the ballet. So, the long line of the dance unfurling from the big house opposite, 
and from the big house beneath her strange scent of male singing and the long line of the dance unfurling. For hours and hours she watched, spellbound and as if drugged, and in all the terrible persistence of the drumming and the primeval rushing deep singing and the endless stamping of the dance of fox-tailed men, the tread of heavy bird-erect women in their black tunics, she seemed at last to feel her, feel her own death, her own obliteration. And I think we could do a fairly um, extensive feminist critique of, of that particular passage. But Lawrence's extraordinary story, where the white woman pays for her husband's exploitation of Mexico, expresses both this kind of mis misogynistic strain in his fiction that comes out in a lot of different places. But it also reflects his particular brand of psychoanalysis outlined in Psychoanalysis and the Unconscious in 1921, where he rejects the Freudian representation of the unconscious as a repository of repressed emotions and desires. He talks about um, the Freudian unconscious as the cellar in which the mind keeps its own bastard spawn. So physical expression is for Lawrence driven by an unconscious motive, but one that originates in what he sees, uh, conveniently for him, a pure state that represents a kind of life force, a Dionysian energy, free of its Freudian associations of guilt and shame. The woman in his short story demonstrates through her desire to join the Chilchui people, the pull of the pristine unconscious. That's, the, that's the, the phrase he gives to his particular version of the unconscious. It's a sort of tabula rasa on which you, know, you go ahead and, and fill in this, um, this gap with all your uh, desires and expressions. But it's, it has a more subjective quality to it. Although it's only through her sacrifice, of course, in the, in the, the story, A Woman Who Rode Away, that the propagation of the collective group will be ensured. In Indians and Entertainment, Lawrence remarked that the Indian... Uh, by the way, he wrote that. He is collected in 1927, a little later than that, in uh, Mornings in Mexico. In Indians and Entertainment... Lawrence remarked that the Indian is completely embedded in the wonder of his own drama. It is a drama that has no beginning and no end. It is all-inclusive. It can't be judged because there is nothing outside it to judge it. The woman who rode away does to some extent express that inwardness, that the in Indian's embeddedness in a drama that has no performative aspect and requires no outside onlooker or judge or perspective and it's, it's something that um, many other modernist writers are contending with at the time even even Eliot in his notions of impersonality I think you could argue um, is uh, is thinking about this issue of you know where do we find the actual performance of the text um, Yet Lawrence's fictional representation of the white woman's encounter with the ethnic ritual seems to borrow uh, quite a few tricks from the spectacle offered by Diaghilev's most controversial ballet. So I'd argued that in a complex interweaving of ethnic tone and primitivist gesture, 
Lawrence's narrator stages the woman's sacrifice by directing her journey as if she were moving against a carefully crafted backcloth. Um, far from the uh, ostensible realism of the story, I think it's highly crafted in this particularly technical way. Lawrence's text combines anthropological observation and performative strategies that in part recall Rurik's, Stravinsky's, Nijinsky's and Massine's contributions to the life of spring.